Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Welcome back to our study in John's Gospel. Um, So far, we've made our way up to chapter 12, and uh, we're going to proceed from chapter 12, hopefully in this session, through to chapter 13. Most of chapter 12 is transitional. It's the closing of Jesus' public ministry and his removal from the public sphere to the time of what Merrill Tenney calls the period of conference with his disciples. John selects three major incidents from the events of these final hours of Jesus' public ministry to focus on in this chapter. So we have the Supper at Bethany, which runs from verses 1 through 11, the triumphal entry into the city, which is verses 12 through 19, the coming of the Greeks, which is verses 20 through 36, and the chapter finishes with Jesus being rejected by the Jews, running from verse 37 through verse 50. This is the last week of Jesus' life. It's six days before the Passover, and we find Jesus back in Bethany. So it starts saying, Here here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, although Martha and Mary and Lazarus figure prominently in the story, the gathering actually is not in their home. Matthew chapter 26 verse 6 and Mark 14 verse 3 all tell us that the story took place in a home uh, that was owned by a man called Simon the leper. It's assumed that Simon must have been one of those that Jesus had healed during his ministry. Perhaps his home was larger than Martha's and it was offered as an alternative. Verse 2 though tells us Martha served. Perhaps she assumed responsibility for the evening, even though it was at Simon's house. Wherever we find Martha, we encounter her serving. Of course, famously in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, she is distracted by much serving. But here it seems that she has learned her lesson because there's no need to censure her here. She's serving, but apparently not distracted by it. Clearly, serving is not wrong. In fact, in verse 26, Jesus speaks of his disciples serving him. We need to be a community of servants. The greatest among you is those who serve. The church should be a community of servants. Living in a consumer society as we do, we are often in danger of losing this idea. Martha served, but she had learned the secret which had kept her from distraction. At this supper, two things happen, two things occur, two revealing things, standing in stark contrast to one another. We have Mary's act, and secondly, we have Judas's attitude. The Bible tells us that Mary took a pound of ointment, that's about half a litre in our terms, of precious nard or spike nard, and she broke a container and poured it over Jesus. Matthew and Mark both say that she poured it over Jesus' head, while John tells us that she poured it over Jesus' feet. Now, I don't think that's a contradiction. It just means that she did both. Half a litre is easily enough to do both. The ointment is described as pure nard. It's an aromatic gum that actually was grown in the high pasture lands in the Himalayan mountains between Tibet and India. 
It was gathered there and carried on camels thousands of miles to the Middle East. So you might well understand it was highly sought after and highly expensive. Judas calculates its worth at 300 denarii. One denarius was a daily wage of a common labourer, so 300 denarii is nearly equal to a year's wages. Um, most commentators believe that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were in fact quite wealthy, but even so, this is still a lavish gift, even by their standards. It was expensive. Mary not only anoints Jesus with this oil, but in complete disregard to oriental standards of propriety, she loosens her hair, lets it down, and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, women in that context, in that cultural context, would never, ever let their hair down in the presence of a man, except her husband, of course. It was considered incredibly inappropriate and unseemly, and a woman could be, and on occasions were, divorced for such an act. By the way, that's the origin of our phrase, to let your hair down. The guests are absolutely shocked. The aroma of the perfume fills the whole house. Let me make just a few simple observations regarding Mary's lavish act. Number one, it was an act prompted by love and by gratitude. She loved Jesus for who he was and for what he had done for this family. Such was the intensity of Mary's love that it demanded expression. Words weren't sufficient to express how she felt she had to do something or else her heart would simply explode. Walter Wilson, in his book Bible Types, comments on this incident and says, Some have thought that the alabaster box was the girl's hope chest of olden days. It was filled with sweet perfumes of various values and then sealed shut. It is said that there were several grades, cheap china, medium and expensive china. When a girl approached marriageable age, she obtained a box according to her ability to pay and her station in life. She saved it until she found the man to whom she was willing to give her life and with whom she desired to live. When this person requested her hand and heart in marriage, then the girl, if she desired to answer in the affirmative, obtained the box from its hiding place and broke it at his feet, and this was the declaration that her quest for a lover was ended. Now, I haven't been able to verify this, but it would certainly fit with our story for the most part. It wasn't marriage, however, that Mary was seeking, nor was it that which Jesus was offering. But it was the giving of her life, however, and this was the way that she could express it. Secondly, it was a lavish gift. I've already commented on its worth. Love is lavish. Nothing is too good for its beloved. Love makes you a spendthrift. It makes you recklessly generous. In a wonderful short story by the famous author O. Henry, he talks of two people who were very, very much in love. They were poor. His most prized possession was his watch. Her most prized possession was her beautiful hair. O. Henry talks of the fact that it was Christmas time and each wanted to purchase a gift for the other as an expression of their love. They each have an idea. The woman goes out cuts her hair, and then sells it to buy a chain for her beloved's watch. The man went out and sold his watch and used the money to buy his beloved a brush and comb set. It was an ironic and sad story, but it illustrates the price that love is willing to pay to express itself. Love makes us lavish in our giving. 
Thirdly, it was precious in his timing. It was only days before Christ's crucifixion and burial. Verse 7 says, she did it in preparation for my burial. Such was the nature and amount of this expensive perfume that it would have continued to send forth its fragrance for, for days afterwards. Perhaps even as Jesus is enduring the agony of his lashing or the rigors of the crucifixion, the scent of Mary's perfume would have remained and lingered and perhaps even helped focus his mind on the purpose of all of this pain. It was for passionate souls like Mary that he was undergoing this agony. The seed would fall into the ground, but a harvest of Mary's would be the result. Some scholars have suggested that Mary knew that Jesus was about to die. Perhaps she saw the sorrow in his eyes. She'd heard him say it, of course, often enough. He'd predicted his death on numerous occasions. Even though the other disciples didn't get it, scholars have suggested she did and she was preparing him for his burial. Now that could be the case, for surely Mary was Jesus' best listener. However, I'm not sure that she actually understood any more than the men did. There isn't really any evidence to suggest that Mary understood that Jesus was about to die. I think she simply meant it as an act of costly, humble devotion. But perhaps like Caiaphas in the last chapter, she actually signaled more than she knew. Spike Nard and this story, I think, is a picture of what worship is, or at least what it should be. Motivated by love and gratitude, it must be expressed. It's lavish in its outpouring. It will often be misunderstood. Jesus misunderstood, uh, sorry, Judas misunderstood what Mary was doing, in the same way that Michael misunderstood David's dancing. Worship will often be misunderstood, and it will accomplish often more than we know. Now, alongside Mary's act, we have Judas's attitude. Over against the faith and love of Mary, we have the greed and deceit of Judas. He says that perfume was worth a fortune. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, that might sound sensible, might sound humanitarian, might even sound theologically sound. But it's amazing how high-sounding theology can simply be a cover for a heart that is callous and cold. Now, I'm obviously not suggesting that theology is wrong. It's just that people in their coldness can shape their theology to cover and defend their position instead of allowing their theology to shape them into disciples. Judas was cal uh, calculating and callous. He was covetous and concealing. He really didn't care for the poor. The Bible tells us that he was a thief. Judas was the betrayer, not because he was foreordained by God to be so. He became the betrayer because he continually stole money, setting up an incredibly destructive flow in his decisions. Selfish people can never understand unselfish people. There is a recklessness about love that the world simply can't understand. Like Judas, they see it as waste. But for a person in love, waste isn't a word that's in their vocabulary. Judas was a materialist. He couldn't see beyond this age with its trinkets, its baubles and its glass beads. His horizon was prescribed and limited by this age and by its values. Paul described people like that in uh, the book of Philippians. In the J.B. Phillips version of chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And this world is the limit of their horizons. 
In verse 20 in that passage, by the way, Paul, by way of contrast, says, our outlook goes beyond this world. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul said that he'd been separated by the gospel or to the gospel of God. And the Greek word for separated is a word ophorizo, which literally means off-horizoned in English. His center had been changed by his encounter with Christ, and therefore, as a result of that, all his horizons were forever different. The world wasn't the limit of his horizons, and Mary was the same as Paul. Centered on Christ, her horizons had stretched into the world to come. Her values had been changed. Her love and devotion uh, to Jesus were everything. Material wealth was nothing. On, by way of contrast, Judas, of course, uh, was a crass materialist. His vision and, and horizons were limited by this world. He'd been with Jesus for three and a half years, and yet effectively unchanged. He had heard all Jesus' discourses, he had seen and participated in the miraculous, and yet he remained a crass materialist. That, by the way, should be a scary proposition for us all. I venture to suggest that the church has as many budding Judases as it does worshipful Marys. Verses 12 through 19 recall the event that we call the triumphal entry. The Bible says Jesus rode along on a young donkey, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid of your king, people of Israel, for he will come to you meekly, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't realize at the time that this was the fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus returned to his glory in heaven, they noticed how many prophecies of Scripture had come true before their eyes. And those in the crowd who had seen Jesus call Lazarus back to life were telling about it. That was the main reason why so many went out to meet him, because they all heard about this mighty miracle. Then the Pharisees said to each other, we've lost. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, when you harmonize the events of the four Gospels, we notice that Jesus actually comes to the city not once, but three times on three successive days. In Luke, Luke chapter 19, he allows all of these events to run together and it seems that they happen all in an unbroken sequence, but they didn't. Mark chapter 11 outlines these different approaches on different days the clearest. In Mark chapter 11 verse 1 it says, day 1. Verse 12, the next day. Verse 20, the next morning. Now, John only records the first of those three entries, and even then in quite a condensed form. It seems that on the first day, Jesus rides into the city on a young colt, and John declares this to be the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. When an ancient king would enter into a city, the animal that they chose to ride on declared the purpose of their entrance, the per the, their intentions. A horse indicated that they had come to conquer, for war. A donkey indicated that they had come to offer peace. I mentioned that when we studied chapter 7 and 8 and looked at what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a point in the feast where the people waved their branches, their lulavs, and they shouted out the great Hosanna, Lord, save us, Lord, grant us success. And here again, they do the same. And however 
dimly, however tentatively, they saw, however tentatively they saw, they made some connection between Jesus and the fulfillment of that feast. On that first day, Jesus rides into the city as a king. He came, he came to the temple. The Bible says that he looked around on all things and then he left without saying a word. On the second day, he comes to the temple as a priest. We see his priestly intercession as he weeps over the city and the state of its inhabitants. He cleanses the temple for the second time in his ministry and seeks to restore it to its original purpose. Then on the third day, he comes as a prophet. The Bible tells us that on that day, he taught with authority. He spoke as an oracle of God. So over those three days, Jesus presents himself in his threefold office of king, priest, and prophet. And he's rejected on all counts. He comes to his own, and his own receives him not. He was a king outside of his own kingdom. He was a priest shut out of his own temple. And he's a prophet without a responsive, obedient people. Now, some have called the verses 20 to 36 in chapter 12 the theological center of John's gospel. It's the Greeks who come to him. And the scripture reads, Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to attend the Passover paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied that the time had come for him to return to his glory in heaven and that I must fall into the and fall and die like a kernel of wheat that falls into the furrows of the earth unless I die I will be alone a single seed but my death will produce many new wheat kernels a plentiful harvest of new lives if you love your life down here you will lose it if you despise your life down here you will exchange it for eternal glory if the Greeks want to be my disciples, tell them to come and follow me, for my servants must be where I am. If they follow me, the Father will honor them. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Shall I pray, Father, save me from what lies ahead? But that is the very reason why I came. Father, bring glory and honor to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already done this, and I will do it again. When the crowd heard the voice, some of them thought it was thunder, while others declared that an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told him, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time of judgment for the world has come, and the time when Satan, the prince of the world, shall be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the cross, I will draw everyone to me. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Die? asked the crowd. We understand that Messiah will live forever and never die. Why are you saying he will die? What Messiah are you talking about? Jesus replied, My light will shine out for you just a little while longer. Walk in it while you can and go where you want to go before the darkness falls, for then it will be too late for you to find another way. Make use of the light while it's still there. Then you will become light bearers. So some Greeks come to Philip. It might be that they came to Philip, Philip's name being Greek, perhaps they thought he might be able to arrange something for them and give them something of an inside track. But when Philip makes known to Jesus that the Greeks were seeking him, Jesus answers in a somewhat unexpected manner. Instead of saying, well, how wonderful, bring them to me and I'll give them an audience, he goes off into a meditative comment about seeds and plants. And he likens himself to a grain of wheat that has to fall into the earth and die in order to produce fruit. Wheat only lives if it dies. 
If it doesn't die, it merely exists and bears no fruit. And it's this pathway by which the Greeks ultimately will see God. If they're going to be able to see him and benefit fully from what he's been sent in the world to do, then his proper response is actually to continue on and to complete the work that his father has given him. And it's through the cross. When I'm lifted up, he says, you will see. It's the cross that truly reveals the nature of God and how God will save the world. You know that beautiful passage from Paul's epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2 where it says, because, or rather, some translations say, though he was in the form of God, because he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid aside his mighty power and glory. Taking on the disguise of a slave and becoming like men, he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on the cross. You ask to see God, Jesus says, he looks like this. This is what he does. Because he's in the form of God, this is how he behaves. In verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the time that the whole of the gospel has been leading to. So often up till now, Jesus has made some kind of comment like, My hour is not yet come. But now there's no holding back. It is the time. It's, it's arrived. And Jesus presents the cross unequivocally as the place of glorification. We will see this again in John chapter 17, verse 1 as well, where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. According to John, Jesus is glorified not despite the cross, but through and in the cross. Why? Well, because it's at the cross that Jesus is revealed fully as the obedient, dependent Son of the Father who faithfully accomplishes his mission. And in John 17, 4, he says, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And at the cross, a little later on, he exclaims, it is finished. Now, none of this was easy for Jesus. And verse 27 says, now is my soul troubled. Jesus was, after all, the word made flesh. Weak human flesh that shrank from suffering in exactly the same way that we do. His natural instincts as a flesh and blood human being was to say, the time has arrived, but is there some other way I can do this? Can I, can I possibly avoid this? You know, the synoptic gospels don't show the troubled side of Jesus until he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. John brings it forward so that now we see it in Jerusalem some days before his arrest. Gethsemane was more than the experience of just an hour or so in the darkness of night. Gethsemane was his experience of soul all the way up to Calvary, in fact. His troubled heart knows that there's danger ahead, but he knows that it is through that danger, rather than sliding or slinking safely past it, that his glory, that the Father's glory will shine out to the whole world. His prayer in verse 28 is, Father, glorify your name. It's answered by the Father's voice from heaven. And some of the people who are present hear something, some kind of sound, and suggest that it's thunder. Others suggested that it could have been an angelic voice that was speaking to him. The expositor G. Campbell Morgan says, It's an arresting illustration of the fact that people often hear the same thing quite differently according to what they are in themselves. 
D.A. Carson says, even though the crowd didn't understand the voice, the very fact that a voice from heaven spoke should have been sufficient to alert those with any spiritual sensitivity that a turning point in redemptive history was impending. In verses 31 through 33, Jesus unpacks the implications of that voice and what's about to take place. It's time for the judgment of this world. Now, the Jews expected judgment at the end of the age, the last judgment. However, judgment begins with the first coming of Jesus climaxing at his passion. Judgment always has two aspects to it, positive and negative. More often than not, when we think about judgment, we always think of the negative aspect. But judgment can be made for you as well as against you. In and through the cross, God makes judgment for his people. Because of the cross, people can be justified. Paul uses that word, and at least a, n a number of times at least, he uses it in a legal sense, as if it is a judgment made in a courtroom, where judgment is passed for people rather than against them. In the negative sense, uh, as the light of the world, Jesus forces a decision between those whose deeds are evil and are exposed by the light and those whose character and deeds prompt them to embrace the light. The world thought that in the cross they were passing judgment on Jesus, but in reality the cross was passing judgment on them. It's the time when, also, the, Jesus says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Although the cross might seem like Satan's triumph, we know from the scriptures that in fact it was his defeat. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Verse 32, this lifting up from the earth. Now, John collapses death, resurrection and exaltation of Christ into this one phrase, being lifted up from the earth. And through this lifting up from the earth, it, all people will be drawn to himself. Um, most translations say all men or all people, but it could actually just as easily be translated all things. Of course, it includes people, but this act is about God's larger purposes and it includes the restoration of the whole created order. In verse 31, now is used twice. These things that Jesus have described, the judgment and destruction of Satan and the exaltation of the Son of Man and the drawing of all things to himself are not just simply reserved for the end of the age. They are now. They are happening now. In Jesus, the end of the age has already begun. What people expected God to do at the end of the age has now been, in Jesus, brought into the middle. The Jews, of course, expected the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Remember Martha's comment, I know that Lazarus will rise in the resurrection on the last day. But God raised Jesus in the middle. New creation has begun and arrived in Jesus. You know, every one of us who believes in Jesus and puts our faith in Jesus are at present in the now evidence that new creation has already begun. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation. The phrase, he is, isn't in the original. It simply means, if any man is in Christ, new creation. It has begun.
Now, the people are confused as per normal in verse 34. They expected a Messiah to be a triumphant figure and to be eternal. And so they ask, who is the Son of Man? Jesus actually declines to answer their question. He's already done so. And one more explanation will not bring any more clarity than they already have. In the little portion that follows, five times his response, he uses the word light. Four times with the definite article, the light, and once simply light. And he simply exhorts them to follow the light. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that in turn you may become sons of light. In verse 36 it says, he departs from them. I'll leave you to read verses 37 through the end of the chapter, but verse 37 through 43 is regarded by many scholars as a summary of the results of Jesus' public ministry. Largely, he is rejected. This is in spite of the fact that he's done many miracles and signs among them. Of course, John is only focused on seven, but he states that there were many, many more than seven. Verse 30, or verse 40 rather, is a verse that's troublesome for many people. It says, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see nor understand nor turn to me to heal them. Sufficient to say that it needs, it, 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 it must be remembered that God never hardens a man's heart until the man has first hardened his own heart. There comes a moment when God simply seals a person's choices. He ratifies the human decision. Even those who were more soft-hearted and really believed that Jesus could have been Israel's Messiah, the scripture says, didn't say so because they were more concerned about what people would think about them or say about them than what God thought about them. To be fair, for many of these people, coming out in favor of Jesus would have been severe including probably some form of excommunication. Verses 44 through 50 are seen by many as a summary of Jesus' previous discourses, teachings, and claims. So we have a summary of his acts and the results of them, and then we have a summary of his teaching. And so chapter 12 closes Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 through 17 span between three and six hours on the verge of Jesus' crucifixion. Sometimes this passage is called the Upper Room Discourse. Sometimes it's called the Farewell Discourse. Farewell Discourse is probably a little more accurate seen since the actual discourse seems to take place not just in the Upper Room, but in two different locations. At the end of verse uh, 31, chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Arise, let us go from here. And it seems that they leave the Upper Room and head out toward Gethsemane. Actually, it's thought that chapter 15 and the vine, the true vine discourse, may well have occurred as they passed by the temple. The temple had at its entrance a golden vine adorning the gates, and that vine was a symbol of their national life. One key phrase in this period of conference is his own, and we see that in verse 1 of chapter 13. His public ministry is now over, and for a few brief hours we watch Jesus with the inner circle of his disciples, with his own. The world is shut out, the critics are silenced, the clamor of voices is stilled. This has a climate of intimacy, of trust, of openness, of closeness. We see Jesus first bearing his heart to his disciples and then turning to his Father in high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. 
Now, there are three main movements in chapter 13. The act of foot washing, which runs from verse 1 through verse 17, where Jesus predicts and indicates his betrayer, which is verses 18 through 30. And then Jesus issuing a new commandment and predicting Peter's failure in verses 31 through 38. In chapter 12, we saw Mary washing Jesus' feet. In chapter 13, we have Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, the foot washing itself wasn't particularly surprising. It wasn't out of the ordinary. Foot washing in that culture was as common as hand washing is in ours. It was a normal part of entering any home. Meals at that time were often taken reclining, which meant your your feet were in close proximity to somebody else's head. Uh, What is surprising about this incident is not so much that the feet were washed, but who did the washing? That was what made it an extraordinary event. Normally the foot washing was done by the most menial servant in the house. This was the one who was on the bottom of the totem pole. If you've served an old-fashioned apprenticeship, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The problem for the small band was the room in which they were was a hired room, so there weren't any household slaves present to do the foot washing. It needed to be done, but nobody was willing. Now, I think the issue is much more than simply nobody willing to do an unpleasant task. I think for the disciples, it was an issue that challenged their very identity. Now, we've often seen the disciples up to this point grappling with this concept. They constantly bickered or fought over who was the greatest among them. And when there is a struggle for the best place to be the greatest, there is always a struggle not to be the least. We all know the story. I might not be the top dog, but I just don't want to be the bottom one either. No one wants to be on the bottom rung of the social status ladder. For them to do the most menial task was in their thinking to be the most menial. They can't separate their identity from their performance. They are profoundly related to what they do. If you, if you are great, then, then if you do great, then you are great. If you do menial, then somehow you are menial. I think the first great lesson of the foot washing is this issue of identity and how it's secured. Verse 1, it starts off and it says, Jesus knew. And then in verse 2, it says, The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. For Jesus to get up and start the foot-washing task was, in the disciples' view, staggeringly counterintuitive. In the midst of all of their insecurity and struggling for greatness, they knew at least that the one person who was truly great and who should never be allowed to do this most menial task was Jesus. He was indisputably the greatest. The gold medal had already been decided. The battle was for the leftovers. But Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing where he was going, gets up and does the job that they are all so studiously avoiding. I think he's trying to get them to understand a very profound and difficult to learn concept. Identity and greatness are not related to and dependent on the task that you are doing. 
Doing great doesn't equal being great, in the same way that doing small doesn't equal being small. It's possible to do great tasks and yet to be a small, narrow, blighted personality. It's also possible to do small tasks and do them with a spirit of greatness. As I said, the key word in this passage is know or knowing. Jesus had his identity secured in the relationship that he had with his father. He knew who he was and where he was going. He had heard the father's voice and the father's approval of him. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you know who you are and you know where you're going, that secures your identity. E. Stanley Jones, that wonderful old missionary to India, said, Conscious of being great with an ultimate greatness, he could afford to be humble. Real humility is not rooted in a sense of humiliation. It's rooted in a sense of being inwardly great. The little person or the insecure person doesn't dare be humble because it would give away their littleness. They have to act a part, a part of being great, in order to compensate for being small. The one who's truly great doesn't have to act a part. He has nothing to keep up. He is great and therefore he's released to do the lowly. There's a critical lesson for us since the, this is a critical lesson for us since the ability to serve is actually based on security. Lang, Langdon Gilkey wrote a fabulous book called The Shantung Compound, and in it he tells a story that illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Let, let me read to you from his book. It's a rather lengthy quote, but it's worth listening to. Most fascinating of all about these strange, to men, female arrangements was the fact that the only woman in the camp who deliberately avoided the latrine duty were two Russian women married respectively to a wealthy American and a wealthy Briton. The point was certainly not that they were Russian. They hired other Russian women to do their chores for them, paying them in coffee sent in to them by their relatives. And it was a wonderful Russian woman married to the British professor of English at Yenching who voluntarily took on the odious and bruising task of running the, the clean-up crews for the women's latrines. Obviously, the cause of their refusal was that they were both hoping to move up socially into colonial society and out of the nothingness of refugee society. They had, one could not help but guess, married these well-to-do men for their wealth and prestige. They did not intend to lose all this newly gained social status by falling back into the kind of life that they had left behind them. For them, if there was any one symbol of that old life, it was the job of taking care of the woman's conveniences. The irony was intensified by the fact that the socially prominent wives of the high-ranking British business officials would never have dreamed of refusing this work once it became a recognised form of community service. While the two women who aspired to grandeur were too proud and insecure to do it, the British possessors of status were too proud and too secure to refuse. The mind of refugee Russian woman working her way up was dominated by precisely those values lacking in the social milieu she had just quitted. Refugee society in the Orient was dismal, abysmally poor and protected by no government of their own. They were the most vulnerable of any foreign group to every economic or political upheaval. They had been badly misused by the Japanese who forced them into all sorts of unwelcome labour. Anyone with energy would do almost anything to leave that society. 
Among the values idolised by this group were therefore material security, personal cleanliness, escape from the lower class life and its humiliating chores. To do this work of cleaning toilets was to repudiate the very value of one's new existence. A woman dare not do it for fear of falling backwards and so losing her hope of being a lady. In her mind, she was still a poor refugee. Work like this, so perfectly fitting her assessment of her status, frightened her. To the secure British woman of colonial upper class, on the other hand, who had been placed at the top by birth and breeding, this job held no social threat at all. Even in dirty refuse-coloured boots, covered boots, she felt and knew herself to be a lady. This job was merely a role adopted for the moment. It did not fit either her inward assessment of herself or the way she thought others would assess her, and so it held no terrors. Moreover, she was conforming to the subtler standards and requirements of the upper class, namely to be a sport, to do your share, to cooperate willingly even though it was distasteful. These standards she dare not ignore, however uncomfortable the job might prove to be to her. Only such a person within the upper class group would even be aware of those standards, not someone looking up longingly from below. The Russian woman had no idea at all that they had broken those rules. In this situation, a lack of breeding did seem to hurt, but it only hurt those women desperately wanting to be considered well-born and in their very desperation proving to all and sundry that they had not been. It's a powerful and profoundly accurate story. Serving demonstrate that one, that one clearly understands spiritual authority is not based on the outward trappings of position and power, but on the much deeper issues of divine substance, relationship, calling and gifting within. So Jesus serves. Verse 1 says he loved them to the end. We, we tend to read that phrase as he loved them right up to and through the cross until he died, the end. But the Greek word for end there is teleos, and it means an objective, a goal that is realized, a purpose that, is, uh, that, that has a result. It's the way we use it when we talk about a means to an end. It doesn't just mean the finish. Jesus loved them and drew them toward an end, an objective, a purpose. And the objective is a mammoth principle, one that he wanted ultimately to control their lives, their thinking, and the thoughts and lives of his church, and it's that of loving servanthood. Servanthood motivated by love is to be the mark of discipleship and of his faithful community. Verse 35 says, By this everyone that will, will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So verse 4 says he rises from supper. Up to this point, Jesus had been eating with his disciples. And of course, there's nothing wrong with eating and ensuring that your body is nourished and uh, enjoying the intimacy and friendship of the table. However, there comes a time in our lives when you've been nourished enough and you need to arise from your supper and begin to serve. We need nourishing, but our lives are simply more than a life of feeding. There's an appropriate place for serving our own interests, but if that's all we do, then something has gone very wrong. We who have been nourished must ultimately serve and nourish. 
The need to reject the outright consumerism of our time that constantly tells us that life is all about what I want, what I need, what I deserve. He lays aside his garments, he rises from supper, and he girds himself with a towel. Again, in that culture, the garments were associated with position, with leadership, with authority. To lay them aside is to lay aside those things that we are apt to use to try and build our own position and our own authority. If we can't lay them aside, we will never serve. I think it also illustrates a willingness to be transparent, to let people know who we are, and to show them, at least in our case, that we aren't perfect. Jesus took the towel and girded himself. And I like to say at this point that transparency never requires indecency. Openness and nudity aren't the same thing. And it's a wise person who knows the difference and where to be transparent and open and with whom. Jesus wasn't naked. He's covered with a towel. And he washes their feet. That requires him, of course, to stoop in humility. We all know feet aren't particularly impressive. They sometimes look like hands that never quite made it. They are very basic. Down to earth, we might say. Feet have a way of telling people where you have been. And getting down to people's feet will help you understand why they are the way they are. Apparently there are nerve endings in the feet that affect the whole body, and a skilled masseur can relax and refresh, refresh the whole body by massaging the feet. Some people in their journey are so busy trying to be the head they miss the fact that servanthood is what makes somebody truly great, getting down at somebody's feet, not ruling from a great height. What Jesus does here isn't an isolated, dramatic event or lesson done for effect. What he did simply dramatized what he had been doing all along. He arose from the table just as he had arisen from his eternal throne. He laid aside his garments just as he had laid aside all his divine privileges. He wrapped himself with a towel around his waist in the same way that he wrapped himself around with our humanity. He took up the most menial task just as the next day after this he would die the most degrading of deaths. When he'd finished he took up his garments, sat back at the head of the table just as he would in his exaltation. Now verse 8, Peter sees all this as a massive contradiction. Rulers, leaders, don't wash people's feet, but this one does. Jesus is actually revealing the identity of God. This isn't just simply a lesson on humility. It's nothing less than the subversion of all the world's ideas of human power and authority. We meet the living God at the bottom of the ladder, or we don't meet him at all. Now make no mistake, he is Lord. And in verse 13, it's interesting, the he, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. And then he reverses that, that order and he says, if I, your Lord and teacher. They say teacher, Lord. He says, Lord, teacher. You know, some people are happy for Jesus to be a great teacher, but that's where it ends. They're not willing for him to be Lord. But he is primarily Lord before he's teacher. But that lordship looks so very different from human authority. You know, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus calls them together. After a period, they'd been arguing once again about greatness and says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice how it talks about Gentiles over them, uh, officials over them, and then he says, not so among you. He who would be great among you. It's not over them, it's among them. Leadership is not over primarily, it is among as servants. Now in verse 18 through 30, Jesus speaks about the betrayal that's about to happen and identifies the betrayer. The supper wasn't just love portrayed, it was about love betrayed. Jesus knew who his betrayer was and yet amazingly still reaches out to Judas. He washes Judas's feet along with the rest. In verse 26, he offers Judas what we call the sop, bread dipped in wine. And such an act was an honour to the one who received it from the host. To offer the sop was an act of friendship. It's equivalent to us perhaps raising a, gra a glass and saying, I drink to your good health. The meal context and receiving the sop actually makes Judas's betrayal an even more heinous act of treachery. The end of verse 30 is one of John's master touches as a storyteller. It tells us that Satan entered him, not by accident or overpowering him, but by seducing him over many small choices for a long period of time. Remember verse 6 says uh, he was a thief. Uh, that's in chapter 12. And then John says, and he goes out into the night. It's dark in every sense, and Judas disappears into it. Now, the departure of Judas was an obvious relief to Jesus. And in verse 31, it says, when he had gone out. Now, this is more than simply a note regarding the time. I think it indicates a change of atmosphere, which enables Jesus to disclose his mind much more fully to the remaining 11 disciples. Knowing that his fate is now settled and the actual machinery of arrest, trial and execution are in motion, Jesus prepares his disciples for the approaching catastrophe. In the section, chapter 13, verse 31, through chapter 14, verse 31, it's the first part of what we call the farewell discourse. It's probably spoken in the upper room before they leave for the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 31 and verse 32 says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus has glorified the Father by submitting to his ways, by submitting to the cross. And the Father, in turn, through Jesus' death, will glorify the Son by exalting him. Verse 33 reiterates that he's leaving them and his departure is imminent. Little children, I'll be with you just a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. A little while is a phrase that he repeats several times in this, in this discourse, Check, uh, chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you, still, you will see me because I go to the Father. Now, twice before he had told the Jews that he was departing from them and that they would seek him and be unable to find him. You find that in John 7.33 and John 8.21. The tone here, though, is very different. 
the Jews were told that they would not be able to follow after him or find him and that they would die in their sins. To his disciples, he says that he's departing, but that he's going to prepare a place for them and that because he lives, they will live also. Having announced that he was departing and that at this time they cannot follow, he then begins to lay out for them what he expects while he's away. Verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all, all will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, love itself was not the new commandment. The Mosaic co uh, covenant had commanded uh, that people love in, in two directions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. What's new here is the standard of this love, as I have loved you. By laying down his life for others, Jesus loved them more than his own life. It wasn't just love your neighbor as yourself, but he's, he's loving them more than his own life. And it's this quality of love that Jesus wanted to define his community. From the standpoint of John's theology, both here and, of course, in his epistles, one cannot persevere as a true disciple without learning to love other people in the community. Now, in the next section uh, of the discourse, the disciples ask a series of questions, and we'll look into these in another session. But you have Peter, first of all, in chapter 13, verse 36, saying, Lord, where are you going? Thomas, in chapter 14, verse 5, saying, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Philip, in chapter 14, verse 8, saying, please, will you show us the Father? And Judas, not Iscariot, in chapter 14, verse 22, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So the next portion of John's Gospel is really Jesus speaking to the disciples and answering their questions. This chapter finishes off with Jesus predicting Peter's denial, and it runs from verse 36 through 38. I think Peter's perfectly sincere in his promise to follow Jesus wherever he goes, even to death. The reality is he simply didn't understand or know himself. He didn't understand his own weakness, his own nature. Peter and Judas are great contrasts in this chapter worthy of study. Both of them failed their master on the same night. Judas went out and hung himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly. One had remorse that worked death. The other had godly sorrow that found a place of repentance. You know, I wonder if you've ever wondered what might have happened if Judas had have come back and said to Jesus, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry for what I have done. Would he have found forgiveness? Of course he would have. The huge difference is that Judas, moved by remorse, not repentance, took his own life. Peter, on the other hand, profoundly repentant. And of course, in John chapter 21, we find Jesus restoring him perfectly to ministry. So that brings us to chapter 14. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.